Please take your Bibles, if you would, and open to Philippians chapter 3. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, the Holy Bible, then we would love to share one with you. Uh, So you can raise your hand where you are, and one of the ushers will be glad to bring you a copy of the Scriptures. If you have one of our church Bibles, uh, those brown hardcover Bibles, we're on page 922. 922, you'll find the book of Philippians. And if you find the large number three on the page, that's the chapter heading, and we will be reading all of that chapter. So page 922 or Philippians chapter three. It is quite a thing for this many people to sing, I surrender all. And so as we read God's word together, you may keep that thought in mind. Will you surrender to all that he has revealed in his word? This is what Holy Scripture says. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, 
And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take out your Bibles again and open once more to the book of Philippians. The passage that Paul read earlier on, we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 3 together this morning. I think it's safe to say that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, no one has ever lived a life that's more consecrated to God's service than the Apostle Paul. Apart from, apart from him... Apart from Jesus Christ, no one has accomplished more for God's sake, but also nobody has suffered more for His sake. As you read through the New Testament, you, you find in 2 Corinthians, Paul actually once took the time to kind of create an inventory of all his sufferings. Just kind of list it. One time, stoned, left for dead. Three times, severely beaten with rods. Five times, 39 lashes. Three times, shipwrecked. And then all the, the lesser trials, like being deprived of food and shelter, being abandoned by friends, being betrayed by colleagues, and not to mention just his agonizing over wandering sheep, disobedient Christians, whole churches that were turning away from the truth. And then, of course, those long stretches he spent under arrest in prison. And he was never arrested for doing anything worse than just telling people about Jesus. He committed no crime. He was just saying what was true. Well, Philippians, as Paul read it for us, that the little piece, that Philippians is one of his letters that was written from prison. It's written quite close to the end of his life. And so by the time he writes this letter, he's already suffered so much, so deeply for so long. Yet as you read the letter, you can't help but notice that He's not bitter. He's not unhappy. He's not discontent. To the contrary, we see in Philippians a man who is living full out. And he's living full out with hopeful, confident purpose. Really, I think of all his letters, you might find Philippians is the most joyful of them all, and this despite the circumstances in which he wrote it. And that makes me want to ask him some questions. I think of a man like that. There's questions I want to ask him because we suffer too, don't we? We experience trials. Some of us have had our bodies broken by illness. 
Some have had our hearts broken by losses. Some of us have had our confidence or our finances broken by failure. Our, broke, our families broken by adultery. Friendships broken by death. Even our minds or our emotions broken by terrible things that have been done to us. And so when I think of Paul suffering in prison, suffering so much, yet joyful, hopeful, confident in the Lord, I want to ask, what are we meant to do with our pains? What are we meant to do with our griefs? How are we meant to live in light of all these hardships that we've experienced? Paul, you seem to know, so could you tell us, could you speak to this church today and tell us how we can live in light of all that we've gone through? And to answer us, Paul would direct us, I'm sure, to Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. Philippians chapter 3, 13, he would say, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So what do I do? How do I live? You've asked me. Here's what he says. I set the greatest of all prizes before me and I press on toward it with a single-minded devotion. That's how he answers us because that's how he lives. And so today I want, to, I want us to understand what he means by that and I want us then to imitate him. He'll tell us three things. You can see these in your bulletin if you've got it open before you. He'll tell us press on to the goal. He'll tell us forget what lies behind. And he'll tell us strain forward to what lies ahead. So we ask, as we ask Paul how we should live well with all these pains and all these sorrows, he responds with one thing. And what is Paul's one thing? The one thing he tells us to do, it is press on. He tells us to press on toward the goal. So we see that right away. Paul is using this metaphor, his favorite metaphor. He uses time and again for the Christian life. It's running a race. It's a metaphor he returns to several times in the letters he wrote. He, he's pressing on. He's running full out toward the goal. The goal in racing is the finish line. The goal in the Christian life is either death or the return of Jesus Christ. Paul is pressing on toward that goal. He's pressing on toward the day he dies or the day Christ returns, whichever happens first. What motivates Paul to keep running this race even when he's suffering so deeply? Even when he's in these difficult circumstances, a terrible prison, he's been there for a long time, he's suffering deeply, what, what motivates him to keep pressing on? He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize. If you're running a race, the prize is a trophy or a medal or maybe an opportunity for some fame or some fortune, but Paul has something much, much better in mind. He wrote about it a few verses earlier, verse 8. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order 
that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So the great prize that Paul is pressing on toward is Jesus Christ. Now, of course, Paul wants to be relieved of all the burdens of his mind. He wants to be relieved of all the sorrows of his soul and the pains of his body and the sins of his heart. All of that, of course he does. But if he could be relieved of all of that, but not have Christ, he would be inconsolable. You'd be disappointed. See, the prize that Paul longs for is not the benefits of Christ. It's not the gifts of Christ. It's Christ himself. That's what he longs for. So I think right away we should pause and just ask ourselves that. Is your deepest longing for Christ? I know you want to have a body that's whole again. I know you want to see your loved ones again. I know you want to have a soul that will never sin again, can never sin again. But if you could have that, if you could have any of that and so much more beside but not have Christ, would you take it? You've probably seen it before, maybe just in the news or maybe in real life. Somebody gets married not out of love for the other person, but for another reason. So maybe she wants access to his money, and marriage is the way to get at that money. Or maybe he wants access to her fame, and marriage is the way he can get hold of her fame. Either way, it cheapens marriage when you don't want the person. You just want the benefits of that person. You want what that person can do for you. And we can treat Jesus that way, can't we? You cheapen your relationship with Jesus if what you're really longing for is the gifts he can give you or what he can do for you, not him himself. Those are very good things to want. But the deepest heart's longing should be for him, to be with him. So it's worth asking, what are you really, really longing for? Because what Paul ultimately longed for was Christ, Christ himself. We also see Paul talking here about God's call. He talks about the call. He had been called to God many years before. You can read about that in the book of Acts. He's called on the road to Damascus. He had obeyed God's call throughout his life. You can see God steering him, sometimes directly, sometimes through circumstances. Now Paul's awaiting the final call. This call that will bring him to the presence of Jesus Christ. One more thing to say is that this call is in Christ Jesus. It's a call that's in Christ. And so the call for Paul was never to serve God in his own strength. It's not like God saved Paul and said, now just go and serve me with whatever strength you can muster, whatever godliness you can drum up from within. The call had always been for this guy, Paul, to serve in the power and the strength that Christ himself would provide and to do it all toward the glory of Christ, not the glory of Paul, but the glory of Jesus Christ. So we asked Paul, how are we meant to live with all the sorrows and the pains that we bear? 
all those things that have happened to us, all those things in the past that we draw now into the present, and they're sitting here in our mind, our body, our soul. How are we meant to live with all of that? And he says, one thing, press on with a single-minded devotion, with an intense focus. Heed the call God has given you and press on in Christ, toward Christ, and for Christ all the way until finally you are with Christ. Press on, he says. And so we ask, well, how? What does that look like? What does it look like for, for us to press on in this race? And he answers two practices. Forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. First, forget what lies behind. You probably know that the word forget can have a range of meanings. One of them is that you have absolutely no memory of something that happened. So I recently went to my bookshelf and saw a book there that looked interesting. I thought, oh, that looks good. I'd like to read that one. So I sat down and I opened it and I saw that I had actually read that book. I'd written notes and I had made highlights, you know, amazing, life-changing, all that kind of stuff. I had completely forgotten I had ever read that book. I had no memory. It was just gone, gone from my memory. That's, that's one meaning of forget. There's another sense of forgetting, though, and it means that you're setting aside the impact of something. So you might sin against a friend, and you apologize to that friend, and that friend graciously forgives you. But you still feel the guilt of what you did. You still feel bad about that. So you go to your friend another time and you say, you know, I just want to say I'm so sorry for what I did. And your friend says, it's been forgiven. Just forget it. Forget all about it. He doesn't mean that thing never happened or I have no memory of that happening. He's saying, don't worry about it. I've set aside the impact of it. That will not hinder or harm our friendship. And that's what we're getting at when Paul tells us to forget what lies behind. There are things that happened in your past that you need to forget. You need to forget them in the sense of not allowing them to negatively impact the way in which you today are called to press on. What sorts of things are you to forget? The most immediate context helps us here. Just a few verses earlier, Paul has recounted his credentials right, as the most admirable of all Jewish men. He, he had these impeccable credentials. He had ethnic, family, religious, personal credentials that were perfect. Yet he says he counts them all as rubbish, trash, garbage, all of it. Why? Because these credentials had once been the ground of his standing before the Lord. At least he thought they were. He thought God loves me because of who I am. Or God loves me because of all the great things I've done. And he knew that if this was constantly in his mind, if this sat in his heart, it might entrap him or distract him or lead him away. So he forgot it. He forgot all of those credentials, lest it somehow impact his ability to just keep pressing on and pressing on. So let's take our cue from Paul. Let's think of a few different things he would tell you that you need to forget. He would tell you to forget your, your spiritual heritage if 
Forget your spiritual heritage if you're tempted to make that the ground of your confidence before the Lord. If your parents and grandparents were Christians, praise God for that blessing. Truly, praise Him for that. But if there's any sense in which that is causing you to set your hope on your heritage instead of on Christ, then you better forget all about it. You better set it aside. You need to forget your spiritual accomplishments. I wonder if you sometimes find yourself recounting the good things you once did for the Lord. Or maybe the great things the Lord accomplished through you. It's great that that God worked through you, but you need to forget about those accomplishments if, if they're making you complacent about obeying God right now. It's never right to say, I've already done enough. I've already done my bit. I don't need to keep pressing on. You need to forget about spiritual accomplishments, also spiritual failures. Because you you can sometimes look back and get all bound up in shame for the evil things you once did or the people you hurt or harmed. And now that shame is keeping you from pressing on. But you've repented. You've been forgiven by God. You're a new man. You're a new woman. So you need to confess your sin. And then in that sense, forget your sin. So it doesn't keep you. It doesn't hold you back as you press on. And then most of the point of our focus today, you need to forget even your sorrow. Even your suffering. Even your grief. Even your pain even all those difficult things you endured, you need to forget them in any way that they might hinder you as you press on toward the goal. Now, we need to be careful. We need to be nuanced here. So I want you to just hear me out. Let's think about griefs. Common experience we've all had is somebody you loved who has now died and you carry that grief. Would Paul come to you and say, you need to forget all about that person you loved and you lost. You need to just leave that person in the past. God doesn't demand that you live as if they never existed, as if you never loved them, as if you don't still love them. Now, what God means for you to do is to understand that these losses, they didn't happen apart from his providence. Somehow, even the the most difficult things in life, somehow those are still part of God's good, perfect, faultless, blameless plan for this world. And that somehow he is receiving and will receive glory even for that. It's not easy. I understand that. It's not easy. You need help to accept this. You need faith to believe this. But our God is pleased to give you the help. He's pleased to grant you the faith so you can accept and you can believe. This puts the responsibility on you then to forget. Forget whatever it is in your sorrows or trials that might keep you trapped in the past instead of pressing on in the present. To forget whatever would cause you to look to God with a kind of reproach instead of praise, submission. 
to forget whatever would cause you to to live in a state of never-ending sorrow so that you're rejecting all of God's good blessings and graces. Puts the responsibility on you to forget anything, anything that might impede you as you press on, you full out press on toward the Lord. You must always, always press on. And to do that, there's this kind of discipline, this discipline of forgetting what lies behind. So Paul, we've been asking you, what are we meant to do with all the pain and the sorrow that God's providence has decreed for us? You've told us we need to forget them, to forget all those pains and all those sorrows and all those trials in any way that they might hinder us as we press on toward the goal. Is there anything else? Anything else Paul would want to tell us that we need to do with these pains and sorrows? That takes us to our third heading. Paul tells us that pressing on also involves straining forward to what lies ahead. You know the word strain? Strain is a word of extreme effort. It's exerting every bit of energy. It's not just going to the running track and kind of jogging around it. This is going to the Olympics and just putting in the absolute maximum effort you can possibly put in. And as Paul describes his life as a Christian... He says he lives in such a way that he's always straining. He's constantly putting in the absolute top effort. His concern is always how to live right now, how to live in this moment. God's providence has arranged this very moment. How will he live in it? How will he please and honor God in it? That means he's, he's asking how to, how to honor God with the current realities of his life, all the things that have been brought from the past into his presence, this grief, this sorrow, this pain, this very specific form of suffering. What's he meant to do with that? And we want to know the same, don't we? How can I live well right now before the Lord with this burden that I carry? How can we live well with these burdens that are here with us in the present? What are we to do with those? I think we need to to look a little beyond just the verses we've been in here this morning, but I think Paul would give us two big instructions here. He would tell us that to press on with all our sorrows, all our pains, all our losses, all our trials, we need to strain forward with godly character, and we need to strain forward with love for one another. Godly character and love for one another. We need to strain forward with godly character. Philippians, of course, is not the only letter Paul wrote. When he wrote his letter to the Romans, he wrote about the connection between suffering and character our times of suffering and the development of godly character. He said, and I think this is in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along, Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character 
And character produces hope. That's a a sermon unto itself. But what what he means to say is that even while we grieve our losses, even while we lament our sorrows, we can rejoice. We can rejoice that God works through our trials and God works through our sorrows. Turns out that sorrow is a kind of fertile soil in which godly character can grow and can bear fruit. Haven't you seen this in your own life as you've been called to, to suffer? Haven't you seen how in times of enduring a trial or times of caring for someone through a, a long illness or times even of losing someone you love, haven't you seen how God worked within you? How you emerge from that trial with greater love for God, with greater peace in His purposes, with greater gentleness, love toward others. In other words, with, with godly character. Haven't you seen that? You might have thought that if you were called to undergo that trial, it would destroy your faith. But you learned it actually strengthened your faith. You might have been convinced that if I'm forced into that circumstance by God's providence, it's just going to pull me right away from God. But, but you found it actually drew you closer to God. Well, that makes sense because God loves you. And God cares for you. God will never give you anything that's ultimately to your harm. Anything that will ultimately lead to your ruin. God has good for you even in this pain, even in this trial, this sorrow. And that good can be many things, but it should always be a closer relationship with Him and closer conformity to Him. There's godly character waiting for you in your trial if if only you'll take hold of it. If only you'll submit to God in your sorrow and depend upon Him, rely upon Him, listen to Him, and apply the truths of His Word. There's there's godly character just waiting there to be be had. I'm sure you can find a host of Christians who will say something like this, I didn't enjoy enduring that pain. It, It didn't give me pleasure to experience that loss or that trial, but I can say this, I'm so thankful for what God did within me through it. And so the first way you you, you strain forward in your sorrows is to embrace godly character, to pursue godly character, even in those times of pain. The second way is to deliberately love others, to turn your pain outward, to turn it outward in, in service to your fellow Christians. God's general calling to all people in all time is to press on toward the goal for the prize. That's something we must all do. But we do this as individuals, not generic, copy and paste kind of people, as individuals. Individuals who's lived through just very different circumstances. We've passed through very different experiences. So the question is, What do you do with your unique circumstances, your unique experiences? More specifically, 
What do you do with your unique sorrows, your unique forms of suffering? I'll make an observation from looking at the life of the Apostle Paul as is given to us in Scripture, but also a host of other Christians I've known in real life or through books. Closely tied to your sorrows, you will often find a specific way God calls you to serve Him. Closely tied to your sorrows, you'll very often find there's a specific way that God is calling you to serve Him by serving His people. See, God's calling you to press on toward the goal by constantly straining, but you need to understand you're not straining alone. This race, the metaphor of the race can be a little bit confusing to us because when we think of a race, we tend to think of a solo race, a bunch of people competing against one another. In the Christian life, this is a group race. We're running toward the goal together. So we're helping each other. We're serving each other. We're cheering each other on. Everybody who crosses the goal wins. There's not one winner in this race. Everybody who reaches the goal wins. And we're there helping, serving, cheering one another. That's true of all Christians, but it's especially true within the context of a local church, which means you and I, we're in this race, we're running this race together. That's why we do something like recite a membership covenant, right? We've covenanted together and we've said this, I engage to watch over you, my brothers and sisters in brotherly love, to remember you in prayer, to aid you in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and courtesy and speech, especially toward you. What we're saying is, of all the Christians in this world, that's too big a field for me. I can't serve all of them. But what I can do, I can commit myself to running beside you, to running alongside you, to help you and to be helped by you as together we strain toward the goal. And one of the specific ways you can help others as you run together is by remembering what you've suffered by accepting God's sovereignty in it, and by then comforting others in their times of sorrow. That means you're straining with your pain. You're serving through your sorrow. You're blessing others in light of your trials. And you're doing it all to help us, the people in this room, to help us run the race, to help us reach the goal. So when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he, he praised God. Again, this should be in your bulletin there if you'd like to read along. Paul praised God who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. How does God comfort us in our sorrows and trials and afflictions? So often through his people. How does God speak to us in those sorrows? Through his people. How does he minister to us? Through his people. How does he show love to us? Through his people. And as we're comforted, we become equipped to comfort one another. So maybe you've been in a time of deep sorrow or trial and somebody from this church has come alongside you and maybe you didn't even know this, but they were able to say, 
I understand. And they've been able to minister the comfort to you that they themselves once received when they went through that same trial, that same form of suffering, or something very similar. We're in this together. We're running this race together. We're, help, we're here to, to help and to serve one another. Which means you're responsible to forget anything in your sorrows that might cause you to live poorly, hinder you. But you're also responsible to remember those things in your sorrows that might cause you to live well, to run well. You need to remember whatever blessings you receive from God so you can comfort others with those blessings. You need to remember whatever promises of God were fulfilled in that time so you can encourage others. You need to remember whatever attributes of God were precious to you so you can strengthen others when they're, they're weak or maybe they're close to just dropping out. You need to remember anything that might help. Help the people around you as together you press on. Comfort, encourage, strengthen, help. Not too long ago, a friend came to me and he said, when I was a young man, when I was a young man, I went through a period of really severe sexual abuse. I spent years living in shame because of that. But as I've studied the Word, as I've sat under the preaching of the Word, God has begun to show me He wants me to, to use that to help others. So what He said to me, if you know someone who's struggling because they've been sinned against in that way or a similar way, could you just tell them my story? Would you ask if they'd like to speak to me so I can minister to them, so I can comfort them? See, he knows that because of the pain he endured, he's become specially equipped to, to comfort those who are enduring a similar pain. I, I'm not saying that every person who suffered sexual abuse needs to do this specific thing. But I am saying that my friend became convinced that, that God was calling him specifically to, to this. So he submitted his sorrow to God for the purpose of God. So we could serve others through that sorrow. And we need to be careful when we say things like this. We don't mean to say God made that man endure abuse so that he could help others. We don't mean to say something like, well, he must have been lacking in godly character. And so God made him endure that trial so it would force him to finally grow in godliness. We cannot know the mysteries of God's will. We cannot know the meaning of God's purposes with that kind of clarity or confidence or specificity. Like Job, we sometimes just need to put our hands over our mouths and just, just keep your, your hand pressed hard over your mouth until the temptation is passed to, to just conjecture about why God did something. What is God's purpose in it? We can't know those things with enough clarity to speak boldly about it. But what we can do is observe something like this. One of the ways God is using that sorrow in his life. I'll set aside why God permitted this to happen. One of the ways God is using that sorrow in his life is to help him grow in godliness. And another one is to help him minister divine comfort to other people. See, my friend loves God. He accepts the will of God. He submits himself to the purposes of God. He allows the secret things to belong to God. And he applies his sorrow to imitating and serving God. 
God calls you to strain forward. And that straining involves growing in godly character and loving the people around you. That is how you strain forward to what lies ahead, to that goal and that amazing prize that lies beyond it. So what trials have happened in your life? What happened in the past that here in the present you still feel the sorrow of it? Feel it in your heart or in your body, in your mind. And then where may, prayerfully consider, where may God be calling you to now grow in godly character in light of that? And maybe to serve others in light of that. Not apart from your suffering, but because of that trial, because of that sorrow. If you are in Christ, you've been called to run. It's a call that comes from heaven and it leads to heaven. Have you heard, have you heeded that call? If not, I'll, I'll give you the call again right now. Same guy, the Apostle Paul once said it like this. He said, the times of ignorance God overlooked. What a gracious God. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands, he calls all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. That's the call. It's a call to repent, to turn away from your rebellion against God and to instead just submit to God, ask him to forgive your sins. And if you ask, God will do it. God loves to do that very thing. He's done it to the members of this church. Each one of us can attest that God's done this in our lives. If you ask, he will do it. And just like that, you'll have joined the race. You'll have joined us as together we run this race. So I hope, I pray you'll hear that call and you'll respond to that call. And Grace Fellowship Church... Members of this church, you've heeded the call. So how are you running? Do you see that goal in the distance? Are you running toward it, toward the end of your life or the return of Jesus Christ? You're running toward it with a single-minded devotion. I want to close out with a story, a story that comes from family lore. You probably know the name Johnny Erickson Tata. You may know her story that in 1967, she was just 17 years old, she was in a diving accident, and through that accident became a quadriplegic. No use of her legs, very, very minimal use of her hands. For a time after that accident, especially when she was in rehab, she just stewed in sorrow and self-pity. For a time, she contemplated just rejecting her Christian faith. She even contemplated just taking her life. But over time, something happened. God began to convince her that her condition was his will. What had happened to her wasn't something that was meant to be resented, but to be embraced and unleashed. She realized this didn't mark the end of her usefulness to God, but just opened a new chapter in it. So what did she do? She found a ministry called Johnny and Friends, a ministry that for over 45 years now, has been serving people with disabilities. 
She's written books and she's spoken before literally millions of people. She's led thousands of people to Christ. If you know anything about her, she's probably the most joy-filled Christian you've ever seen or ever met. She's constantly singing. If you ever talk to her, I almost guarantee she will break out into a song of praise to God. And this after all these years of being confined to a wheelchair, going through cancer, so much else. So she's had this big impact out there in the world, but I suspect her greatest impact is through personal interactions. I'm thankful on a number of occasions she's reached out to just be a blessing and encouragement to me. She had some very kind things to say about my book, Seasons of Sorrow, but there's something beside all that that means so much more to me. In 1965, my Aunt Nancy committed suicide. She had a long battle with mental illness and eventually took her life. My grandfather was a Supreme Court judge. He was prominent in Montreal, and so her death became really public. Um, the musician Leonard Cohen even wrote a song about my aunt that really blamed my grandfather for her death. There's just so much shame upon my grandfather and upon the family. And eventually my grandfather responded by also taking his life. So here's one family with two huge, huge tragedies. But in all that pain, God got to work. He saved my dad. He saved my aunt. Those of you who remember John Cowell, a member of this church, he saved his mom as well, my aunt. And then he also saved my grandmother. But of course, those losses were still there. She was a Christian now, but in her past, her recent past, were these two terrible losses. But this woman, Johnny Erickson Tata, had just written a book, and my grandmother read the book and was encouraged by it, so decided to write a letter to this young lady, just to share her heart and to ask for some help. Johnny replied to her. She encouraged her. She helped her. She blessed her. Just think about this. All the way back in the 70s, when I was probably a year or two old, she reached out to help my grandmother through the loss of a child. Forty years later, she reached out to me to help me through the loss of a child. That's what we're talking about here. She models what we're talking about. She is pressing on toward the goal. I'm pretty sure she's not going to stop until she reaches it. She's straining forward to what lies ahead, and she's doing it by forgetting whatever might hinder her, all those things in her past that might hinder her. She's doing it by remembering, embracing whatever will help her grow in Christian character, whatever will bless God's people. She's pressing on in this race, pressing on in a wheelchair, pressing on with a body that's weak and battered and broken, but she has a faith that's strong. And she loves to tell people that when she reaches the end of her goal, when she reaches the goal, she reaches the end of her race, she gets to heaven, she'll finally be able to get to her feet after all those years in a wheelchair. She'll do that. Then she says she'll just immediately fall to her knees and worship Christ. Worship the one she's been pressing on toward. 
Do you see this prize? Is your heart fixed upon him? Even with all these griefs, all these pains, all these sorrows, are you pressing on, pressing on toward him until you reach the goal and receive the prize? Let me pray that God will make it so. Our Father, we pray. We pray for your help. Pray for your help that we would press on, that we would embrace whatever opportunities we have to minister to others and serve you, serve your cause. Pray that we would press on until we reach the goal and receive the prize. Amen.